You carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Bella Deschamps Cook. And I'm Blake Subcheck. And can I just say, I am so excited to kick off season two of We're In Here with you, Bella. We have lots of awesome guests lined up, including one very special guest who we'll introduce shortly. But uh, first, I wanted to ask you, what's on your bookshelf these days? Hmm, Good question. I have been on a little bit of a nonfiction kick. I'm just trying to learn a bunch, I guess. I recently read a book about how the universe might end. Um, You know, just casual, fun, light reading. Uh, What about you? I've also been on a bit of a nonfiction kick. I've been reading a little bit about the year 1968 when I was about negative 20. But on the cyber front, I recently had the pleasure of reading Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, which is a new book out from Andy Greenberg. And we are thrilled to be welcoming Andy as our first guest for season two. He's an accomplished journalist, author, and all-around investigator extraordinaire who penned the definitive book on the Russian cyber threat Sandworm. Andy's latest book takes us deep into the secret lives of crypto crime lords and the global law enforcement authorities and technologists charged with tracking them down. And they can be tracked. And that's a really interesting point that we'll unpack with him. It's, it's really gripping stuff. But before we get to sit down with Andy, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Synac. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 pen testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of vetted and trusted researchers. Their work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. Synac gives businesses the best chance of finding every vulnerability that matters. Find out more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. So first of all, Andy, super, super excited to talk with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, I just want to say I have been super excited about your new book. I really like the title. Um, and I I haven't finished it, but I'm in the first section. I'm like mostly done with the first section. And I was immediately hooked. Like it is exciting right off the bat. Uh, and so for listeners who maybe are new to the subject, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us what is the biggest misconception about cryptocurrency? Well, you know, the the whole notion of this book really is that when I first discovered for myself this phenomenon called Bitcoin in 2011, um, you know, I was among the many people who believed that what was special about this was that it was an anonymous, untraceable currency for the internet. That you know, even, you know, even Satoshi Nakamoto himself or herself uh, had written in an email introducing Bitcoin that participants can be anonymous. And I, I was, you know, among the people who believed that. And I was, I've always been interested as a reporter, as a cybersecurity reporter, in, in like the ways that people seek anonymity online for privacy or for, you know, to do bad things. And that was what interested me about Bitcoin. You know, I, I thought that this might be an untraceable crime coin for the dark web. And then, you know, it was very quickly adopted for that purpose on sites like the Silk Road. And then... No, now looking back, in fact, I kind of had this kind of slow motion epiphany that that I only you know put that I only kind of like fully realized uh, in 2020 or so. Bitcoin was the opposite of untraceable. You know, it was in fact 
an extremely traceable form of money. And it served as a kind of trap for a, almost a full decade. I mean, uh, more than a decade in some sense for people seeking privacy and especially for criminals who thought that they could get away with all sorts of illicit finance and money laundering and theft and crime and, and massive drug deals, among other things. I just absolutely love the book. I, I, I think all the incredible detail you captured will be so valuable to readers, uh, just casual readers new to the subject and experts alike. So uh, really just kudos for a triumph of reporting. And um, we'll try to keep this conversation free of any large spoilers, but obviously I expect we'll un unpack a lot of the themes and a few characters and details from the book. So I just wanted to give a heads up to listeners that, you know, there may be a couple of uh, a couple of little spoilers here, just, just as a heads up. But um, with that said, I, I have to ask the uh, those $40 that you mentioned that you almost spent on Bitcoin way back in the early days. Uh, what if, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a painful memory to think of like when I, so in 2011, when I was writing, I think it was the first print magazine story about Bitcoin for Forbes magazine. I thought, hey, I should just try to buy some Bitcoins to see how these work. And I tried to spend like $40 buying uh, Bitcoins at the time when Bitcoin, uh, the exchange rate was a dollar per Bitcoin. I was going to buy 40 Bitcoins with my $40. And uh, the only exchange was Mt. Gox and it was kind of buggy. I tried it, it didn't work and I gave up and that that uh, lack of persistence cost me potentially millions of dollars in retrospect. I remember distinctly, you know, when I was a bit younger and everyone was talking about cryptocurrency and I had friends who were buying it probably, I mean, not at a good time, right? It was already getting really big. It, we were, we all folks my age at least like missed that early opportunity. Um, but I think about that too, like what if, and I remember one of the first things that I learned about cryptocurrency was that in order to mine like Bitcoin, for example, the strain on like the compute power that it takes is awful for the environment. That was like one of the first things that I learned. And sometimes, you know, as a person in the cybersecurity space, I have friends that ask me like if I ever got into Bitcoin or if I could go back, if I would get into Bitcoin. And I feel like my answer is always no, like it doesn't seem worth it to me. <laughs> but it's always like that question is always something that I think comes up in this space. Well, I could have like probably bought Bitcoin, not at a dollar, but, you know, for a few hundreds of dollars. <laughs> Although at that point, it wasn't clear at all that it was, you know, yeah. going to eventually be worth tens of thousands of dollars. Um but, you know, I always held off in part because I just, I guess, a kind of journalistic integrity thing. Like, I'm going to keep writing about this. I don't want to have any feelings about, you know, about like trying to promote Bitcoin because I own a lot of it. Or so I know that was in part why I missed the boat on this. But, you know, like I said, it's never really been my interest in Bitcoin as, as investments and the massive appreciation of it that has made it so interesting for most people. Um, it's sort of been a sideshow for me. Like I've always been interested in Bitcoin as a tool for people seeking privacy for good or ill, and particularly for ill. I mean, that's like the most interesting part of the Bitcoin economy to me. And in the cryptocurrency economy as a whole has been this, you know, dark web underworld and ransomware and stolen hundreds of millions and billions of dollars in money flowing around. I mean, that's that I've always found more fascinating than even, um, you know, the get rich quick schemes that I missed in those early days. Right. <laughs> I think it's interesting hearing you talk about like wanting to, you know, that journalistic perspective, wanting to be sort of hands off because obviously, you know, reading through your part, parts of your book, at least so far, 
the the folks that you're writing about were involved in in Bitcoin in so many different ways. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about one of your sources described as the anthropological side of Bitcoin. Well, Sarah, Sarah Micklejohn is a kind of central character in the book. And she was a, a university researcher at the University of California, San Diego. And in 2013, just at the same time as, you know, the Silk Road was really taking off, um, I had interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts, this kind of like a not this mysterious creator of the Silk Road. Nobody could figure out who he was. He espoused to me how Bitcoin was untraceable and the perfect, you know, tool for this revolution that he was creating with the Silk Road. Um, he was a you know radical libertarian idealist kind of person. Um, she was looking at at the Bitcoin economy and at first kind of as you said, looking at it as an anthropologist, trying to figure out well what can I actually see if I look at the blockchain? I mean, maybe this is not as untraceable as people think, and I might be able to just kind of observe how people are using Bitcoin by looking at all this data. I mean, the crazy thing about Bitcoin is that all of the transactions are recorded in the blockchain. Uh, yet, you know, people like me and even Satoshi Nakamoto thought that it had privacy properties because the blockchain only records transactions between addresses, not between people who are identified in any way. Um, but Sarah Micklejohn started to figure out ways to cluster addresses, to figure out when somebody owned lots of addresses and to tie them all together, and then to even identify, you know, when she, she could figure out who owned which clusters of addresses. And her, her goal, as you know, you were getting at, at first was just a kind of anthropology. But then she began, to, I think, to realize, and this is in the paper that she published that year, that if you were in law enforcement, if you could subpoena like a cryptocurrency exchange for identifying information, you would be really well placed to actually identify tons of people who thought that they were anonymous. And she published this paper along with her co-authors at UCSD that was really the first... Uh, I would say the first document to explode that myth of Bitcoin's anonymity or untraceability. It still didn't get the kind of attention that it ought to have. I mean, um, it would take years longer for people to truly uh, digest that and, and understand, no, this is the opposite of untraceable. But that was a kind of um, really important historical moment. And a few other characters in the book were really paying attention, including the founders of Chainalysis, which is now the biggest cryptocurrency tracing company in the world, worth $8.6 billion, and people in law enforcement who began to wonder, like, maybe we got, you know, maybe everybody's wrong about this. Maybe we can trace Bitcoins and surprise a lot of criminals. I remember, you know, back when I was uh, covering some cybersecurity issues as a reporter for e, e News, often framing Bitcoin incorrectly, really, in retrospect, I would often refer to it in stories as this, you know, very, if not, I wouldn't say impossible to trace, you know, difficult to trace, un, you know, falling into that sort of untraceable myth. It's really interesting. But what do you think motivated some of the subjects in your story here? I mean, a lot of these people, you mentioned the sort of libertarianism around Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, but then there were others that just kept going, even after they'd already collected millions of dollars in illicit gains. Was it hubris? greed, some combination? What what was motivating these characters? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, what motivated the Dread Pirate Roberts um, was, uh, by the way, Blake, I, I appreciate that I wasn't the only journalist who got this wrong, like in the early days. I mean, it's it was very, um, I mean, even after Sarah Micklejohn's paper, which I covered and I even, you know, had done some test 
some test transactions, I should say, on the Silk Road buying marijuana there at Forbes as an experiment. Absolutely, as an ex- as an experiment. Uh-huh, as an experiment, experiment, Andy. All um, right, okay. Uh, she traced she traced <laughs> my transactions, and nonetheless, like uh, Sarah, Sarah showed me that she could trace my transactions, and I still thought, well, you know, if you're a little more careful, if you do the right things, like if you don't make the mistakes I did, that you can still be untraceable. Like it's hard to trace, at least. And even that, I think, was incorrect. Just to address what you were saying, but yeah, the, the motivations of these dark web kingpins. I mean, I think. It is interesting to see how different they were. I mean, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who is really almost just kind of like the character who I used to introduce this world. You know, the book just tells the story of the Silk Road almost as a preamble. Um, He was very idealistic. He was um, politically motivated. He thought that he could like bring in this world of, um, I would say like anarcho-capitalism on the dark web that, you know, was very short-lived for him, at least. He's sadly now like facing a double life sentence in prison. Um, but the people who followed in his footsteps had none of those ideals, I would say. And the one that I'm most interested in uh, and who, who is a major character in the book uh, is a, somebody who went by the name Alpha O2 on the dark web and was the founder of Alpha Bay, which was eventually the biggest dark web drug market in history, 10 times the size of the Silk Road at its peak. Um, and he sometimes pretended like very briefly to have those libertarian ideals, but then much more clearly was actually just in it for the money. And Alpha Bay had none of the rules that the Silk Road had, for instance, about only engaging in victimless crime. It had none of the kind of flowery political rhetoric around it. It was among other things, um, also a, a haven for cyber criminal hackers who were buying and selling huge amounts of stolen credit card data and hacking tools on Alphabay, which is actually quite different from the Silk Road. And Alpha O2, the founder of, of the, the site, um, was himself a kind of notorious carter, like a credit card fraudster, before he created Alphabay, which is very different from Ross Elbrick, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who was this you know, 29-year-old idealistic kid in San Francisco, you know. We sort of talked about how it took some time for people to kind of like actually accept that that Bitcoin in particular is like not anonymous or, or not as anonymous as originally thought. And like, to me, sometimes I feel like reading about what happened with the Silk Road, it feels like like people were kind of clouded by this like idealism, right? Like, there was like an optimism of this anonymous currency, which made it hard to accept that it might not be. Uh, but also it sort of sounds like maybe folks were just clouded by like making money. What do you think about that, I guess? It's a common kind of like cycle of hype and gloom around um, around new technologies. And, and like you saw this with Bitcoin that everybody wanted to believe in the promise of it and to, to you know, it, it was as it gained value, everybody wanted to try to like, come up with the reason why it was so special, why um, everybody should buy into it, because there was a sort of profit motive there as well. So I do think people resisted the, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners even resisted talking about the, you know, potential flaws in the privacy properties of Bitcoin. It actually is, I would say, like a, a real drawback to Bitcoin that, 
it's very difficult to hold it even in an anonymous way if you ever want to cash it out or spend it anywhere uh, or, or buy it from anyone else. And that is something that the cryptocurrency community has been trying to solve for years with you know, tools to work with Bitcoin or upgrades or new cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash. Um, but it remains that the, you know, the, the, the vast majority of these, these really valuable cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are quite traceable. And that's something that uh, has taken the whole economy along that economy a long time to kind of tum, come to grips with. So at, at some points in the book, it, it takes some really, really dark turns. And, and so dark, in fact, that you have to warn readers up front about what they're getting into. Uh, can you talk a bit about how you navigated reporting on such disturbing topics? And were there any points where you just wanted to stop an interview or just even go rinse your eyes and ears out with soap? I think what you're getting at is this major case that followed Alpha Bay. I mean, I think it's not a spoiler to say that like sure. <laughs> Alpha, Bay, Alpha Bay was eventually yeah. largely through cryptocurrency tracing busted in this massively elaborate sting operation that... I don't know, readers can, I'll, I'll leave that in, for the book, but- um, It was very then, pulse pounding, I will say. Reading that section, <laughs> I was like, I, it was it was a page turner. It really was. Thank you. I mean, th I, just to say, like, I have tried to tell this that story of the, the hunt for and takedown of Alpha Bay, um, Alpha Bay's administrator, Alpha 2, and actually this sort of like even larger busts in which the second biggest dark web market was taken over and run undercover at the same time as Alpha Bay was taken down. And anyway, I'll, I'll leave it for the book, but that was a story that I had been trying to tell for five years. And um, I just it only kind of just reached the point in the last couple of years where the people involved were willing to really tell it in detail. I, and, I almost uh, had a heart attack when there was a moment of a spilled soda. Uh, that <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, so the but that's the Alphabet case. And then the one that followed is the one that I think you're referring to, which was the Welcome to Video case. And in some ways, you know, despite the size of Alphabet, this Welcome to Video case was even more impactful because it was, this was not a drug market or a hacker black market. This was a, a market for child sexual, child sexual abuse materials, like videos of child sexual abuse, um, which, uh, was a, a world that I had never really covered and that I think, you know, I don't know, just I, at least as a reporter, have always sort of almost wanted to avert my gaze from that whole part of the internet. It's, we all know it exists. Um, I, I think that like, it's so abhorrent and so disturbing that, um, you don't want to even report on it in some cases. It's just, uh, and people don't want to talk about it. Readers don't want to read those stories, uh, I have found. Um, but, you know, for whatever, I, I couldn't help but tell this story, which followed Alpha Bay, in which some of the same investigators, through cryptocurrency tracing alone, I mean, this was a case where, because hundreds and hundreds of these uh uploaders, downloaders, actual abusers of children in many cases were paying in Bitcoin um, and the administrator was cashing out Bitcoins, they could all be traced. And hundreds of these men, and they were almost all men, of course, were arrested in like a dozen countries around the world. 23 children were rescued. 
Um, and it was all almost exclusively through cryptocurrency tracing that it was possible. Um, so it's truly a landmark case. It's one, yeah, as you said, it was not fun to report on. I mean, the I am legally prevented, of course, you know, as is anybody who's not in law enforcement from looking even at like images of this site, which has now, of course, been taken down. But um, I was, but I did spend, you know, hours and hours and hours talking to the investigators who did that case and were just deep in that hellish environment of having to watch these videos. And in some cases, they watched them not only to kind of like, you know, write the criminal indictments, but to look for clues, to try to identify kids. And they did. I mean, in some cases, they like a tiny clue would allow them to find a kid and rescue them or identify one of the perpetrators if they, for instance, had not paid in, in any cryptocurrency they, and they couldn't be traced. In one case, that led to an actual perpetrator who was doing, you know, I should say alleged, I guess, but hands-on abuse. So, yeah, I, I did, you know, part of what was fascinating about that case and a theme of the book in general is that many of the major, some the main characters of this book, I would say, are IRS criminal investigators. They're like accountants, essentially. And they had never encountered this world any more than I had. You know, they, they were um, people who followed financial crimes. So it was a totally new thing for them to be looking at this kind of child abuse, child exploitation case. And they were fully unprepared for it. And I tried to tell the story in the book of like what that meant for them emotionally. And uh, they are, despite being like accountants and IRS uh, agents, also law enforcement agents. And it was difficult in some cases to get them to, you know, to get past their kind of like tough exterior. But, but in, but I, and so I had to just ask again and again about this in a way that was sometimes, I felt almost bad that I was making them relive this trauma. But, but I did, you know, like um, in the process, I think get a hint of what it was like to live. I mean, because they truly do like throw themselves into these cases in a 24-7 sort of way to live in a in that environment for months on end. And I think everyone involved was traumatized and, and changed. I mean, their ideas about what human beings are capable uh, were changed. And so were, so were mine to some degree. Well, I think it's super important reporting. And I think, you know, uh, you've really, sometimes I think, even the agents covering this material can be a bit of a thankless job, right? And and so I think highlighting their stories and really spending that time with them, certainly being an empathetic interviewer and listening to them and getting their stories on paper, I think certainly serves as a validation of the importance of the work that they're doing, even against these horrific circumstances. Um, but on a lighter note, I will say I was very impressed with your ability to make me cheer for the IRS. Uh, that's uh, not something you see every day. So, and, and I thought the way that you unpacked kind of the pecking order of some of the agencies involved in these cryptocurrency cases was really interesting, right? You had the IRS sometimes relegated to the quote unquote kids table, right? And uh, despite their massive contributions, uh, do you think your book will maybe change the reputations of some of these agencies? Well, I definitely like to tell underdog stories. So that was like part of why I loved the fact that IRS was so central to so much of this. I have to say also that when you're a reporter trying to get people to tell you stories who often don't tell stories, 
like federal agencies, uh, the IRS was, was more willing to talk than like the FBI, for instance. The FBI has a very too cool for school mentality about this. It was really hard to get them to even talk about the few parts of these cases that I didn't really need to tell. But the IRS is, I think, a little sick of being relegated, as you said, to the kids' table. So um, I think that they wanted some of the credit they deserved, you know, for for their work. What's what's the impact that you hope this book will have? I didn't really intend this book to be a message-sending book so much as like a um, uh, a chronicle of a really crazy period in the history of the internet where there was this, this gap, at least for the last 10 years, between the perceptions of people who thought that they were untraceable and the people who were very capably tracing them. And the dramatic, the crazy circumstances that that created, the massive cases that resulted. If there is a message in this book, I guess it's a, you know, a kind of public service announcement. This is that's actually Sarah Mickeljohn's term for it, about the privacy problems of cryptocurrency. Um, and in some cases, I truly do think of them as problems. I mean, it's fun and easy in a way to tell these cops and robbers stories and to root for the investigators chasing people doing bad things. Um, but it's not that simple, you know? I mean, Bitcoin was exciting in part because it seemed like it offered an escape valve from this pervasive financial surveillance that you know is everywhere in the traditional banking system and credit cards and everything can be so easily tracked in our usual money systems, everything in the cashless economy. And Bitcoin seemed to be an antidote to that, like true cash uh, for the internet. And it really was not. And the fact that that escape valve turned out to be a trap is not an entirely happy story. And you know, and the fact that like this kind of financial surveillance is possible with cryptocurrencies isn't something I feel like entirely comfortable about either. You know, I tried to get into that, and you know, throughout the book in different places and in the end of the book, but I didn't really want this just to be a a true crime story or a pro law enforcement story. We, we talked a little bit about like how Bitcoin is just not as anonymous as as we've previously thought it was. Uh, but I think there's one really interesting, like anonymous person that we haven't talked a whole lot about yet. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of wild that you are one of the last people to get a message routed to the mysterious figure behind all of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and it doesn't really seem like from what I've read that you've gotten a lot of theories about who they might be, like in the book at least. Uh, do you have thoughts on who that might be? Or do you even think that their identity matters at this point? Well, it's interesting, yeah, that you bring that up. I, to be clear, you're referring, I think, to the fact that when I wrote the Forbes magazine article about Bitcoin in 2011, I asked Gavin Andreessen, one of like the primary Bitcoin programmers, you know, developers, to pass along a message to Satoshi yes. for me. And... Um, Satoshi. Note to listeners, we weren't suggesting that Andy has Satoshi's email address or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a really important clarification. Thank we you. actually, Thank you know, he, he did have a public email address at that point, and he was still responding to it. I guess I didn't know what it was. I, you know, I was just so new to the beat that that you know, I was like one of the only reporters, maybe the only reporter at that. I don't want to give myself that much credit. I was, you know, one of very few reporters at the time who was even looking at Bitcoin, but. Um, 
Satoshi passed a note through Gavin Andreessen just saying he declined to comment. But even that, I, I'm not sure there's any other media stories out there that even have a Satoshi declined to comment in them, which is which seems so <laughs> bizarre in retrospect because now he's this legendary, you know, absolute mystery. And you know, I, it, I didn't include this in the book because it's not uh, something I've ever truly been like personally interested in. But I have gone down several Satoshi hunting rabbit holes that resulted in <laughs> stories, good and bad, I should say. Like I, um, at one point, uh, believed that Hal Finney was Satoshi Nakamoto. Hal Finney was the second ever user of Bitcoin. This is a very long and complicated story, but when Newsweek came up with who they thought was the creator of Bitcoin, this guy, Dorian Nakamoto, I discovered that Hal Finney, the second ever user of Bitcoin, lived just down the street from where Dorian Nakamoto lived for many years. And that seemed to me to be a sign that Hal Finney had at least helped to create Bitcoin. Maybe he'd even used Dorian Nakamoto um, as his fake name, Dorian Satoshi Nakamoto, that's his middle name, as a kind of way to disguise himself. And a lot of people believed that Hal um, was Satoshi. I eventually visited Hal uh, at his home. And at the time, he was very sadly dying. He was paralyzed with uh, ALS. These were like the last months of his life, really. He was unable to even communicate with me except through like a kind of eye movement tracking typing system and like raising his eyebrows. He denied being Satoshi and he showed me some evidence that he was not, and I believe him. Um, I, I came to the conclusion before publishing any stories. It was I, I published a story that was about, you know, about Hal, who was a remarkable, really wonderful person. Um, a had had his hands in many like incredible um, crypto, uh, actual encryption and, and cryptocurrency um, developments. But I don't think he was Satoshi. One thing that I think you do really well in the book is talking about some of these, even the technical aspects of like how a Zcash works, how it sort of melds all of these different transactions into one sort of mix-up situation and enables more anonymity than Bitcoin and tries to go after some of these um, really complex mechanisms that maybe evaded some of the early adopters of cryptocurrencies. It's really complex stuff, right? There's a lot to unpack. Uh, it, it can be hard to follow for the technically uninitiated. And I think your book does a really great job of... Uh, getting people to understand enough to really feel compelled by the story and really engage with it directly. And part of how I think you do that, you know, you have so many colorful characters that you bring to life, right? Whether it's Bitcoin Jesus or, or octopus guy that really helped whisk the story right along. Uh, do you have a favorite character in that, uh, in the lineup that you, that you included? I would say that my favorite character is, is the main character of the story. I mean, there's a reason why I chose to focus so much of the story on Tigran, Tigran Gambarian, this IRS criminal investigator. Um, you know, it, it it is he is just like a wonderful um, mix of he is a nerd, he's an accountant, he's a forensic accountant. He like spent years working at the IRS auditing people, um, but he's also this. Armenian immigrants who has lived in in uh, post-Soviet Moscow for much of his childhood and witnessed, like, he had a very difficult childhood. He's, like, a very tough sort of post-Soviet guy in many ways, like, even if that's not an unfair character. And he has this chip on his sh shoulder. 
He's like tired of the lack of respect that IRS gets. He is a true, you know, gun-toting federal agent who, who has ambitions of like taking down bad guys and knocking down doors and like hauling people to prison. And, and he has this like a very clear sense of right and wrong. He's just a, like a, you know, a really unplaceable character in that way. And, um, and uh, it was just a wonderful gift to the story that he is also, uh, he is, I guess, Bitcoin Jesus. He's referred to as, uh, as that in some, in some cases, because he was kind of the Bitcoin whisperer within so much of law enforcement. He was at the center of so many of these cases. Um, so, you know, he is the one who, who with Chainalysis located the Alpha Bay server. He is the one um, who traced Bitcoins for the very first time to prove someone's guilt in um, the beginning of the book. You know, and he is also involved in the Welcome to Video case and so many others. He eventually seizes, uh, I don't want to spoil too many things, but he, he, he at one point like broke the record for seizing more, not just Bitcoin, but any kind of currency um, in Department of Justice history. So, um, you know, I, I do I feel very grateful to Tigran that he told me these stories and, and that he's such a, a weird and unusual figure. So to wrap things up, we have a question for you that we ask of all of our interviewees. Uh, what is something that we wouldn't know about you just by looking at your LinkedIn profile or your other online social media presence? I'm trying to think of like what I do in my life that is not work these days. Um, <laughs> oh, too relatable. <laughs> I guess one thing that I do not include on my LinkedIn resume is that I briefly had a uh, a career, you could, I don't know, more like a job as a Chinese language children's music recording artist. And I, I like, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I lived in China for a while. I spoke Chinese and, that, and then I, I was like somewhat desperate for work and, um, and like recorded some, some Chinese language children's music that's maybe out there somewhere. <laughs> You didn't save uh, copies. Cool. Is this a, is this a, is it etched into the blockchain somewhere? I have to give this a listen. I've been you know a reporter covering cybersecurity for like fifteen years. So before like two thousand and five, it does doesn't it feel like things are not like in the permanent record in the same way, which is really a good thing for for me, uh, as you can tell. Yeah, the Internet Archive is helpful, but only only goes so far ultimately for some of these things. So, um, but no, that is definitely a a, a fun fact and. Uh, one that I'm sure our listeners will appreciate uh, learning about you. And, and thank you again for, for joining us. Really fascinating book. Definitely recommend everybody give it a read. Um, it's a, it's, it's really a, a crowning achievement of, of reporting and an excellent uh, primer on all these super important issues that are really only uh, sticking with us for the long term. You know, Bitcoin's here to stay. So thank you for talking about it. And thanks for those. Yeah, that's, that's very kind of you. I mean, um, especially coming from you, Blake, I've, I followed your reporting for years, and uh, you've also done some amazing work. Let me—I I, maybe I shouldn't say this because Bella, I'm not sure if you're a reporter too, and I don't want to like, um, or were a reporter I'm not previously. Say okay. away. Okay, so I hope that's not like rude to say that. Um, no, Bella's got it, the technical chops in this in this uh, interview for sure. All I know is cybersecurity, nothing else. Do not worry. <laughs> well, you probably just do like the actual impressive stuff that you then do not publish, like. <laughs> me and Blake, who are just, you know, showing off all the time. 
most um, of my career I cannot talk about or publish. So yeah. <laughs> well, then we should definitely talk again sometime. Um, <laughs> uh oh, wait a minute. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all for having me on. Does your penetration testing meet compliance requirements? Does it adhere to the most rigorous security standards on the market today? Now you can find Synac on the FedRAMP marketplace for all of your agency's security testing needs. Synac recently received moderate in-process status from FedRAMP, meaning that even more U.S. departments, agencies, and contractors can utilize Synac's global network of trusted and vetted security researchers for on-demand, around-the-clock pen testing. Learn more at Synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. If you like today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us get noticed on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, you can share this episode with your friends and make sure to check out all of the other fascinating people that we've already interviewed. We're also open to your suggestions. If you know someone that we should be talking to, drop us a line at we'reinpodcast at synac.com. That's we'reinpodcast at synac.com.